0: Good morning. This is um, Cozy. Um, we're going to do the Bible reading now, and we're reading from uh, Luke chapter 16. I'm reading the first uh, 13 verses, Luke chapter 16. And if you've got one of the church Bibles, it's on page 849. The parable of the shrewd manager. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? "'900 gallons of olive oil,' he replied. The manager told him, "'Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450.' Then he asked the second, "'How much do you owe?' "A "'1,000 bushels of wheat,' he replied. He told him, "'Take your bill and make it 800.' The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. "'For the people of this world "'are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind "'than the people of the light.' I tell you, use your worldly worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of their own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money.
1: Thanks for that. Hi, everyone. I'm Mikey. It's great to be here. Um, It's always a privilege to be able to be uh, able to come. I I got a stool. Sorry, Um, it's a privilege to always come here to Southside and to preach to my Southside family. I love being part of this church, um, being part of the uh, Southside family. Uh, I always uh, joke, but um, after Ross and Ben and Jash, I'm the fourth in line to get called um, if no one can preach. So um, it's great to be able to be here. Um, Yeah, I mean, thanks, thanks Ben for uh, sharing a bit about our church, how Providence is going. Uh, we did celebrate our third birthday two weeks ago. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of great praise points from that, um, that day. We had interviews sharing and people were sharing about um, what they've uh, learnt and what they've, uh, how they've grown at Providence. Uh, one of my greatest praise points, I'd just like to share this with you, is one of my high school friends who I haven't um, hung out with really for about 16, 17 years uh, he never finished high school. He has a really rough background uh addictions, trouble with the law and stuff. He actually showed up uh, on our third birthday and after that he said, "Mikey, I really um want to come to Providence every week. I really need community and want to learn more about god and um, I'm praising God for that that's um that's huge. so yeah, praise God that um God is still working, and yeah, thank you so much to Southside really for your support and and how you guys pray for us and and everything so yeah, let's get into this. This one's a, a tricky passage. I don't know why I decided to do this one for today. But um, hopefully we can um, get a better understanding of it and ask God to speak to us. Let's let's pray to do that now. Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you do speak to us through it. And we pray, Lord, that your spirit will be at work in our hearts, uh, teaching us, but also moving our hearts to repentance. Uh, moving our hearts to turn to you and to, to see how we can um, better use um, money or better use um, yeah, what you've provided for us to, to build relationships and to, to glorify your name. So we do pray for that in your son's name. Amen. So it's exciting. Uh, Jeff and Kelly getting married next week. I'm, I'm excited for you guys. It's nice to see all the posts going online. Um, it's funny because the other day on Facebook, I saw this post come up that said, how rich would you be if you invested instead of had your wedding? It was an article that linked to, uh, to a calculator where you could type in the number of years you've been married, how much your wedding cost, and then click a button that magically calculates how much you'd have if you invested that money instead. So, just for fun, I put in six years, that's how many years I've been married to Heidi, and the average cost of of a wedding, which the website said is roughly about 30 grand. People spend about 30 grand on weddings. Now, I put that number in and I clicked on the Go button and it came up to about $54,000. That's how much richer I would be today if I didn't spend on a wedding. Um, and it's, it's, it's funny, the website said that if you, this is how much money you could spend on yourself for things you truly need down the road, like college fees for your kids or jet skis. Because we all truly need jet skis, right? Now, for some people, not having a wedding sounds ridiculous. That's, the, that's a childhood dream. You know, to, to throw a beautiful wedding that you've always wanted. It's the biggest party you'll ever throw in your life. The biggest, the biggest op- um, opportunity to gather everyone you know and to see everyone scrub up and put on their dancing shoes and, and take a million photos looking your sharpest. But for others, it makes total sense. Save your money. Invest it. Do, do what you really want to do with that money. I mean, that money's just going to, to spend on your friends getting dressed up, drinking and dancing. That's not even your thing, Right? So you might as well invest it in the future, buy something you really need, like jet skis. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? Some would say that's wise to save your money for the future rather than some overpriced party. Others would just say, what's money for if we can't spend it to enjoy the friendships and family we have throwing a party and celebrating that milestone together? I don't know which camp you fall under, whether you're the, the type to just enjoy the present and, or you're always worrying about the future. We all have different views and values when it comes to how we use money. But it's generally true for all of us. We really do treasure money, don't we? We really value it. We all believe we need more of it. We believe that, if, if that it can buy us happiness. It can buy us security. It makes our lives better in the present or in the future. And with it, we often look inwards, don't we? How do I better my life with what I have? How can I be more comfortable for my future? How can I treat myself? Our world promotes this consumerism, the whole bigger is better mentality. Bigger houses, bigger cars, bigger bank accounts, bigger holidays. We're told to pursue security, even luxury, and a a comfortable lifestyle. And we see it on on, on the social media, the bloggers out there telling us to live it up. But when it comes to the Christian faith, when it comes to God, Jesus approaches it with a completely different worldview, doesn't he? So how will we, uh, for those in the room, how will we as Christians, in the eyes of a watching world, how will we view our money and our resources? For some of us here who might not be Christians, I'm hoping that this will still be insightful for you to understand the God of the Bible and how he views money as well. So follow along with me in chapter 16. From the get-go, we're told that Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he tells them this parable, there's a rich man with a manager who manages his finances. This guy's like the, the CFO of the company, in charge of how to invest this money and how to spend it. But words out, this guy's been wasting the owner's money. And so he calls him up and says, hey, you're fired. <laughs> right, that's it. And no one wants to ever hear those words. We'd rather quit before we get fired, right? But you can imagine how this guy feels. What are you going to do? How will, you feed, how will you feed your family? And you start going through this mental checklist of jobs you could, you could possibly apply for. So he considers manual labor. Oh, should I become a tradey? You know, oh, I'm not strong enough really to li- even lift a hammer or a shovel. You know, not strong enough to dig, he says. My skin is too soft and supple to handle the harsh sun. There's no calluses on his hands. Well, he's probably thinking, okay, maybe I could beg instead. But I'm too ashamed to beg for money. I mean, I was in a managerial position, I worked in an office. It would be a huge downgrade, and it would be a hit to my reputation if I became a beggar on the streets. I can't do that either. Way too shameful. This guy mustn't have had much of a resume, right, because his options seem pretty limited. So he comes up with this brilliant plan, verse verse 4. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. And so what he does is he calls up all his boss's clients, the master's debtors, these are people who, are the, who the master invested money into. He calls them up, and as the parable goes, he cancels part of their debts. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? This is where his shrewdness comes in. This is why he's called the shrewd manager. And now shrewd just means wise or clever, quick thinking. He calls up the guys who owes his master money, and he says to the first one, How much do you owe him? Verse 6, 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. Now you're wondering, aren't you, how, how can this guy just discount all this owing money? I mean, what right does he have? He just got fired. Yet he still goes to the effort of at least redeeming some of the money owed to the master. Now, some commentators have said that in in Jewish tradition, this extra money is like the interest, the commission he could have made as a manager. All he's doing is just cancelling that commission that's owed to him. But I think there's actually a bit more to this. There's something a bit sketchy about this, isn't there? You know, the way he tells his client to sit down quickly, and and he doesn't really punch the numbers. He just cuts the debt in half. It sounds a bit dodgy, doesn't it? He's doing something uh, under the table here. He's most likely ripping off his master by doing something like this. But whatever he's doing, it's, it's clever, isn't it? He's gaining favor with these clients. He's looking out for his own good and preparing for unemployment. I mean, 900 gallons of olive oil sounds expensive, doesn't it? I mean, back then, that's a lot of money to just halve. But imagine, too, if you, were the, if you were the guy who had to pay half of your debt back. You know, I'm imagining this from... from from the, from the bank of your mortgage, and the bank said, nah, look, we'll just cancel half your mortgage. <laughs> You'd be stoked, wouldn't you? You'd be thankful. You'd want this, the bank manager to come around for dinner to say, thank you, cook him a nice meal, and he'd become your new best friend. Canceling half your debt? That's what this manager's doing. He's making friends. So that when he's out of a job, these guys will remember him as generous and good to them. And perhaps, just perhaps, they'll even employ him to manage their households. That's the thinking behind this. And his master finds out. And as the parable goes, verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Now notice, he didn't commend the manager for his dishonesty. He probably just lost a lot of money from his investments. And so we get a bit confused here in this part of the parable. We read this part and we think, is Jesus saying it's okay to just do dishonest things? The whole secret handshake and a wink thing? Well, Jesus is firstly telling a story. He's telling a story about a, a master who's commending his manager. That's just part of the story. But secondly, the master, he isn't saying, good job for ripping me off. Good job for wasting my resources. He's saying, you're dishonest, man, but hey, you're also really smart. Good on you for being clever and sharp, quick witted when you're about to be fired. Now it's interesting. Though he's a bit of a sketchy character in the story, he's commended. Given a pat on the back. Jesus isn't saying what he did was right, how he approached his, but how he approached his coming future, that was clever sounds confusing, but it shouldn't be. When we, when we see people who do clever or cunning things, we can still be impressed, can't we, to some extent? Doesn't mean it's necessarily right. When I think about this, I think about the, the movies um, that we watch, um, Oceans 11, have you guys seen that movie? Back a, years ago, right? And they've made Oceans 12 and, and so forth. You've got, you got this group of thieves who come up with this really clever way to rob a casino. And you're watching the movie, and they've got a, a group of really clever criminals. You've got the flexible guy who hides in small places, the, the pickpocket who steals the ID card to get into the vault, the, the hacker who gets into the security cameras. And together, they pull off this huge heist. And you watch it, and you want them to really get away with it. You, really, you watch it, and you, because that's, that's the whole point of the movie. You want them to get away with it. You don't want them to get caught. It's so clever. But they're still criminals. <laughs> they still deserve to go to jail. It wasn't right but it was clever and cunning. And so the master commends this manager for being shrewd about his future, for being clever, for being cunning. And that's the parable. That's all we have. Now, to understand the point Jesus is making, we've got to understand some things about the master and the manager. The manager's role is managing the funds of the master, right? How the money is invested and things like that. His, His role is essentially stewarding the master's money. That means this money isn't his It's the master's money. The manager is called to look after the master's money. And now with every parable, we need to see what it has to do with us, the listeners. The first thing Jesus really wants us to recognize is this. God is the master. We're called to manage and steward all that he's given to us. And so we've got to ask ourselves, do we see our money as God's money? Do we we see that everything we own, all our resources, our possessions, as belonging to God? And that God calls you and I to manage his resources well. I think a lot of people, we we struggle with this truth. How is everything that I've worked for, all the money I've earned, the sweat, blood and tears I've put into my my job, the overtime and late nights to get that promotion and, and all the things I have, how does that belong to God? I mean, people have said this to me. Why do I have to give glory to God? Why do I have to thank God? I put in all the effort. I had had someone ask me this question recently and I got him to think who gave you the opportunity to work? Who gave you the intellect or the experience or the talent even? Who gave you an able body or an able mind to study? Who allowed you to grow up right here in Brisbane or to access an education? Did you get to choose and earn your position in society? Born even into a privileged Western society? Why weren't we born in a a rural village in Southeast Asia in 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 poverty? What about life itself? Who gave you life, the very breath that you breathe? Who gives who who gives you that? And so, when it comes to money, the ability to earn it through working for it, isn't that still ultimately God, the Master? I mean, God puts the pieces in places that allow you and I to find work, to make money and to, to steward or, or manage that money for God and to do good with it. Some of us, we hear this, and we hear this as Christians. We've grown up in church, some of us, yeah, and we agree. We go, okay, everything I have belongs to God. I get the principle. But how much really belongs to God? How much really does God want from me? And so people will suggest that a tithe, you might have heard that before, just 10%, which was what God commanded in the Old Testament, give 10% to God, to his church, to the work of his kingdom. Now in Israel, this was uh, how it went down annually. They gave a tithe of everything they owned, and they give, um, give more also to certain festivals each year. But in New Testament Christianity, there's no command to give 10%, the early church may have they may have continued that practice, but what Jesus and, his, and the Apostle Paul taught was to give generously, to give sacrificially, might be 10 percent, there might be much more. Now, if we were to take this principle though, and apply it to God, this, this parable, if God is a master and he only requested 10 percent of what was already rightfully belonged to him, it's actually not that much in the big scheme of everything we own, is it? I think of how much CEOs earn in Australia. They earn 78 times more than the average worker in their company. Everything we have belongs to God, but God decides to still give us everything that we have. And he only asks for 10% of what's rightfully his anyway. Let's understand that na- the nature of this. When you go into the Old Testament, places like Malachi 3.9, it talks about when the Israelites aren't giving their tithes. They're, they're robbing God. That the more we keep selfishly for ourselves and, and to consume for ourselves, we're robbing God. I never. I don't know if you ever thought about it that way. I think the first thing we need to really get from this parable is that everything we have to know that everything we have is God's and see that giving to God is actually just returning back to Him what is rightfully His. Everything we have and own belongs to God. And so as Christians... We want to encourage budgeting, deciding what it looks like for you to sacrificially and generously and joyfully give back to God. But here's the second thing Jesus wants us to recognize. Jesus wants us to invest God's money into our eternal futures. When we read the next part, verse 8, The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Jesus is is talking about Christians here, isn't he? There are, there are people of the world and there are people of the light. He's saying even those in our in our world, they're, they're more shrewd in dealing with their money and their own physical well-being than those of us caring for our spiritual well-being. Jesus is having a go, he's having a go at Christians here. If we're to compare how much people care about investments in their physical life and future, it's so plainly obvious, isn't it, that they they do much more than Christians do investing in their future spiritual well-being, don't they? How are we being shrewd about our future? Not just the temporary future, not just the next 30, 40, 50, 60 years of our life, but what about our eternal future? Are we being shrewd about that? I think too often we're so consumed by the here and now, aren't we? We're sucked into the marketing and what's trending. We're eclipsed by the immediate, the latest fashions, the latest technology and whatever else gets our attention. We're living in the present, living in the temporary, investing in houses and stocks and and cryptocurrencies when all that will will fade. Being shrewd as a Christian isn't just preparing for the temporary life, is it? It's preparing for the eternal life. The eternal future. Jesus is saying here, friends, disciples, Christians, you guys, you guys are so short-sighted. We are so short-sighted. Look at the bigger picture. Look at how this manager prepares for his future. That's a point Jesus wants to make for his listeners. As people of the light invest in your future, your eternal one. But third, like, thirdly, how do we invest in our eternal future? Jesus says to invest it into relationships. Verse 9, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Take note, money never lasts. He doesn't say if it fails us. He says when it is gone. There's a certainty here. We live in a world where the economy could crash any second, where our investments could lose money. There is nothing that is truly safe or secure or lasting. You know we know that. We buy the latest laptops and, the, and phones to find out in a couple of years they, they can't keep up with the software or, or they just have to we just have to upgrade them again. The houses we invest in never satisfy. They deteriorate and always need upkeep. Real estate can appear a terrible investment sometimes when the market crashes or natural disasters strike. But even if it's not the investments or the possessions, we know, don't we, that it'll all be gone when we die, right? Do any of you think that you can take your, your money and your investments to the afterlife? We can't take it with us. You, could, you can die a billionaire, but you can't take that money with you. We enter our world with nothing and we leave our world with nothing. That's the very reality we have to live in. It doesn't matter if you're, you're someone who lives the YOLO life or is always planning for the future. That's reality. We only have a short time in this world, and everything we have and, own and earn will one day be gone. So here in verse 9, Jesus says, I tell you, his way of saying, listen up. While the manager is investing into his future, Jesus is telling us, Christians, to invest God's money, the master's money, into their future, thing, into things that will last eternally, and particularly friendships. Have you ever stopped to consider how precious your investments are are in other people that those investments will be that you get to see them in heaven enjoying God with you think about this spend your money on others give to others give out a generosity and through it make friends that will last into eternity you see this parable is on the one hand about money but on the other hand it's also about relationships the manager in this story he cuts his losses but he, his focus isn't just about money he wants to gain friends so Jesus says, use what God has given to you to make friends and invest in relationships. And isn't that what we ultimately care about? Say if you borrowed my expensive Lamborghini that's sitting outside. and I was driving around. I don't actually own one. But if you imagine I had one and you borrowed it and you got yourself into a tragic car accident driving my Lamborghini, right? The car was totaled. My first question isn't, oh, is the car all right? Is it? If if that was my first question, you have every right to think I'm a selfish jerk. It doesn't matter what condition the car is in. It matters if you're all right. If you're the one in the car accident, I should be asking if you're safe and unhurt. And I'm hoping we'd all care about that, right? care about the person more than the money when it comes to life or death, right? So what makes heaven so great is that, that our relationship with God and, and that when we get to see our friends there with us, we won't need money in heaven, but you'll, you'll want to see the people there, the people that you love, people around us. That's what we get to enjoy for eternity. And so when it comes to life and death matters, are we investing in those friendships with the hope that they'll have eternal life? Do we use money as God calls us to, to be generous with it, to support the poor, to care for the needy, to build up his church? Is that how we see God's money in our bank accounts? Jesus' point in this parable is this. When it comes to money, it's not about us. When it comes to money, do we think about how people in the world, they care about their future physical well-being more than Christians care about their future spiritual well-beings and relationships? If we're honest with ourselves, friends, there are things that we really need to, to to consider. The first thing is, Christians, we're not very good at thinking of the future and what's eternally going to matter, eternally going to matter. This is what needs to grip our hearts. If you truly know what your eternal future looks like, it will change your life, won't it? Everything changes. The future the future reality determines our present priorities. The way you see relationships change. The way you see your reputation change. And in this context, the way you see your money changes. Being shrewd is thinking about our goals and thinking backwards. Do you believe that heaven is real? Do you believe that God has secured that for you? Do you realize that eternal life is so much longer than the temporary? Do we also want to see special loved ones and more and more friends in heaven with us? Now, if the answer is yes to all the above, if that's our future reality, how are we living today to see that happen? We want to invest in the future. And I know at Southside here, we, we, we financially support the, the mayorings in Ireland. We financially support the, the chaplain down at Rochetown State School. That's great because we want more and more people to know Jesus and, and the future heavenly realities with us. Previously, uh, Southside supported the Evans family in in Japan. They supported Jeff Taken up at AFES at the university, at Griffith University. Why? Because we wanted to see more Japanese brothers and sisters in eternity. We want to see more of those university students in Brisbane come to know Jesus. And so as a church, we want to support that because we want to see more and more people enjoying God with us for eternity, don't we? We want to see... We want to see children in, in, in countries in, in, that are in poverty and, and support organizations like Compassion who are alleviating these children out of poverty in the name of Jesus. That's where we want to invest our money into. And So how will we be shrewd with our money? How will we invest in relationships, investing in God's kingdom? You do, maybe you do want to give to the, to the work of the church. Maybe you do want to give to the work of missionaries. Maybe you do want to give to the homeless and poor in our society spending it on places so you know that people will come to know the gospel. I was talking to Jayesh a couple of weeks ago about this. He told me he could save $1,000 a year if he didn't buy coffees every day. If he just stayed home and made instant coffees, which would be an abomination, he wouldn't have the opportunity to build relationships with the people at his local cafe. There's this cafe that he goes to every day in New Farm. Now, if he was just doing this, to go to the cafe and drink coffee with no desire to build relationships, then yeah, maybe you could argue that is a lot of money, $1,000 a year. It's unwise and wasteful. But if he does it intentionally to build relationships, if you see money in Jayesh's context is being spent with the hope of seeing new friends and seeing them in our future eternal dwellings. The crazy thing is, we live as though we will live here forever. That's how we live. But friends, this isn't our eternal home. This isn't all that there is. I know, I know some very ambitious people. They have this grand vision um, of the next 20 years of their life. You know, they're in their 20s, and they have the hope of retiring by 40. And I, I think in my head, friends, if this is you, your, your vision for life, your ambitions and your goals are far too small. Especially if we think that this life is all that we have. You know, while some are planning for the next 50, 60 years of their life, Jesus is telling us Christians to plan for the next 50 billion years. Our eternal life that's going to be so much more glorious. So everything we have now, God says, use it for his kingdom. Use it to gain friends, to see others rescued into eternity, so that you and they will be welcomed into that grand party, that even greater party, the great banquet that awaits us in heaven. But as we turn to verse 10, Jesus actually finishes with addressing our attitude towards God with it as well. Verse 10, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And so we read that, and we just look at how many times Jesus talks about this idea of being trustworthy, trustworthy with what you've been given. In every season of life, have you ever thought about this? God gives us something. And so when we read this, this talk isn't just for... Um, whether you're a student or, or a worker or you're retired, God gives us, he provides for us throughout all seasons, doesn't he? How you invest in what you've been given shows, us our, shows your attitude towards Jesus. And so you've got to keep thinking, what am I modelling as a uni student, as a, as a worker, as a husband or wife, as a dad or mum to my children? When I, was, when I was going through my uni years, I didn't have much. I had a part-time job that didn't pay much, but I was always given that principle, be generous with what I have. Set up habits now as a union, because when you do have more as a worker, you can, be gener- you can still have that st- same standard of giving. And I'm preaching this to myself, friends. You know, I'm, uh, how can I be trustworthy with the resources that I've been entrusted with? Or am I robbing God? with with what i've been given Jesus points us to this reality we can't have two masters as christians we can't say god is god and we believe and love him but he can't touch our money these last words jesus wants us to see that money is the measure of our hearts the spiritual measure of our heart is seen in our attitude to it how we view it how we use it how we spend it it's an outflow of our hearts It's one of the greatest idols that Jesus speaks about, more than any other topic in the Bible. People might say money is evil, but money is not evil. The problem isn't money, the problem is a love of money. You see, our hearts are always in search of a substitute God, and money is the perfect candidate. It gives us an illusion of power and control, it promises us so much, but experience tells us it delivers so little. It's given as a good gift and a tool meant to serve others, but more often than not, we elevate it so that it's, it becomes an idol that we end up worshipping. We have to put money in its rightful place, don't we? Money makes a terrible God. It never makes us feel secure or satisfied. It makes us play the comparison game when we're never content and we covered our neighbor's stuff. We just never seem to have enough. We've got to go away from today and do a heart check, ask ourselves this, are we able to give away chunks of our money? Not so that we end up in poverty ourselves, but are we able to give it away so that others know the gospel? That's a hard question. But if money is a measure of our heart, how how are we loving Jesus with it? Who rules your heart? If you do believe in Jesus... If you believe that Jesus has died on the cross for your sin was raised again, if you believe that Jesus has secured for you eternal life with God, has given you more than you and I ever deserve, if you believe Jesus in his grace gave you his very life as a substitute for yours, if you believe in the gospel that you and I have been saved by grace alone, that you've received unending joy, eternal peace, and the infinite love of God himself, if you believe all of that and have experienced the grace and generosity of God, how does it change your life, friends? What will it look like to steward what you have, all your possessions, your very life? In a world that screams to us to consume and consume and consume, God tells us prepare your lives for the eternity that's been secured for you. It's the gospel that motivates us. There's a couple in our church, Noah and Dummy, and they recently got to have the privilege of visiting the Philippines. They got to visit a, a Compassion Project in the Philippines So Compassion, as I said earlier, is that organization that helps alleviate children out of poverty in the name of Jesus. And Noah came back from the Philippines and he told me about how he saw these, these children living in poverty and how it broke his heart. He got to see it firsthand. He was sharing with me how helpless he felt. Why did these children have to grow up in these circumstances? Why was I given the opportunity to grow up with the opportunities that I had? They visited this village and they, they gave gifts. They, they sang songs for them and they showed love to them. And the children, they couldn't do much except um, give them hugs and spend time with them. But on leaving this village, without any expectation at all, one of the children came up to, to Noah and presented, presented him with a, a live chicken from their farm under his arm. Now for Noah, he was thinking, how do I bring this home? How do I bring this on a plane? I can't. For Noah, this was just a chicken, right? A chicken that probably costs $8 down at Woolies when it's barbecued. But for this children, for this child, this chicken would have been part of their livelihood. It would have been worth so much to their family. Why did he present this chicken to Noah? Because he saw Noah and Dami as their friends. He wanted to be generous. Friends, as Christians, how has the generosity of God to you and to me, how has that generosity affected the way you see the resources and finances you have? Let's invest that money, not into the temporary, but into the relationships and the kingdom that is everlasting. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we do thank you for your generosity to us. We thank you for the generosity that we see in Jesus in His grace and the lavish abundance of your grace to us on the cross. We thank you so much, Lord, for um, saving us, for bringing us into our relationship with you when we didn't even know you. We don't deserve that, Lord. And so we pray, Lord, that we'll see our lives, everything that we have, everything that we own, all our possessions, Lord, as yours first and foremost, that we'll see that you are our great master, the one that we want to serve. And with everything that we have, the things that we have, we pray that you'll help us to steward it well and wisely and shrewdly, knowing that there is an eternity that awaits us. We thank you, Lord, for being our God and our God that has um, promised us that eternity. We pray this, Lord, in your Son's name. Amen.